0: Amen. Don't, don't be seated just yet. Don't be seated just yet. I want to welcome you. Uh, would you pray with me? Father, we uh, thank you for being a holy God, and that simply means, God, that you are uh, greater than us. You're set apart from us. Uh, the way that you think, the way that you, uh, the way that you make decisions, it just goes beyond our understanding. Um, and God, you are perfect. You've never failed to be uh, exactly as you are. Yesterday, today, and forever the same. God, we recognize you are as holy, and God, we thank you that uh, in Christmas, we remember the time when you sent your holy son, Jesus, to live on the earth that we live in, to face the temptations that we face, and ultimately to die for our salvation. God, we give you glory in the holy name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. All right, now you can be seated. If you fought the wind to get here, it is good to see you. And for those who didn't fight the wind but you're tuned in uh, watching, thank you for doing that. I know there is some sickness going around as well, so uh, we pray that everyone is staying as healthy as you can be. Uh, I want to begin just by celebrating. uh, Last week we talked about a a love challenge. I challenge you to text the word LOVE to 40777. And 279 of you have been doing that. And so uh, you've been getting a, a text Uh, uh, sometime mid-morning each day reminding you to be love to the people in your life and so I want to challenge you Jesus said don't just be hearers of the word or if he had lived in our you know 21st century context as a human he might say don't just be receivers of the text but also do what the scripture is calling you to do we encourage you to continue doing your best to practice love to the people who are in your life. And we've been in a series the last couple weeks called The Greatest of These, which comes out of 1 Corinthians 13, widely regarded as the love passage. And if you were here when we kicked off that series, you might remember that we talked about false substitutes or inadequate substitutes for love. We talked about things like speech, uh, insight, faith, even sacrifice. And I used an illustration that Sunday. I talked about cooking, that sometimes when you're cooking because of a allergy or because you simply have run out of something in the cupboard, you can usually find a substitute to replace the thing that you need as an ingredient. If you're not so much a a cooking or kitchen kind of person, let me use a football analogy. I'm referring to American football because I know very little about the other. But in American football, the most important position is the quarterback. And when the quarterback goes down, and a backup is put in their place, most often it doesn't go super well. Uh, If you watched the abysmal game last Sunday between the Raiders and the Vikings in which the score was 0-0 with a minute and 57 seconds left, you know the reason is that it was two backup quarterbacks. In fact, last Sunday, 13 of the 32 NFL teams started a quarterback who is different than the quarterback they named as the starter at the beginning of the year. Mostly that was because of injury. And all uh, six of the first quarterbacks, so three games, six quarterbacks at the beginning of this week that have already played all six backup quarterbacks. Now, the reality is sometimes a backup quarterback can get the job done. Hashtag Tom Brady circa 2001, right? Like, that worked. Sometimes when you reach for the alternative ingredient, the, the thing turns out just as well. But Paul makes the argument at the beginning of 1 Corinthians 13, there is nothing that can replace love in the life of a follower of Jesus. What Paul doesn't do in those first verses is answer the question, why? Why is it that if if we're short on love, we can't just reach for some faith or some hope or some joy or some spiritual gift? Why is it that these things, and in particular, spiritual gifts, are not adequate substitutes for love? And so today, we're going to seek to answer that very question. 1 Corinthians 13, again, I'm going to read the entire passage. You can follow along with me, beginning at verse 1. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing." But as for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when perfect comes, that which is partial will pass away. And so when I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child, and when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. Right now we see in a mirror only dimly, but then face to face, now I know in part then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. And so now faith, hope, and love, these three abide, but the greatest of these is love. I want to show you from this passage three reasons why spiritual gifts are an inadequate substitute for love. And the first reason is that they are not permanent. What we see in verse 8 is that Paul begins his argument with these words, love never ends, as for prophecies a spiritual gift, they will pass away. As for tongues, a spiritual gift, it will cease. As for knowledge, yet another spiritual gift, it will pass away. Paul says the spiritual gifts are not here to stay. Now, if you're not familiar with that term, spiritual gifts are simply the supernatural abilities given to us by the Holy Spirit of God when we put trust in Jesus the Son for our salvation. Every Christian has one, It's a supernatural endowment, so to speak, and it's for the purpose of either equipping the church, extending God's kingdom, or both. So you could have a spiritual gift of mercy, or teaching, or administration, or one that Paul names here, prophecies, knowledge, tongues. These are gifts given to equip the church and extend the kingdom of God. Dallas Willard refers to the kingdom of God as simply the range of God's effective will. The kingdom of God is where what God wants is what happens. That's why Jesus said, when you pray, pray, Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So we begin with, God, let your kingdom invade my heart let your will be reigning supreme in my life and then from me into my family, into my workplace, my school, my neighborhood, let the kingdom of God reign, meaning let God's will be done on earth. So that's what that's referring to. But what Paul's gonna make the point of is that the spiritual gifts, the the things that help us to accomplish that mission are temporal assignments. In heaven, the church will be fully equipped And in heaven, the the reign and the kingdom of God will be fully extended. So there will be no more need for these spiritual gifts when we get to heaven. All that will be left is to love God and one another perfectly for all of eternity. The value of a thing, in other words, is largely determined by its longevity. When you're buying a, a, a car, a home, one of the things you're evaluating is Will this hold up for months or years or decades? You want to make sure the roof is good. It doesn't need to be replaced soon. How long has the AC unit been in place? I'm evaluating the longevity in part to determine the value of a thing. When I was in college, uh, sophomore year, one of my friends and his younger brother uh, they had a grandmother that passed away. And they received a fairly sizable inheritance. And they both received the money, same amount of money, received it at the same time, but they spent it in two wildly different ways. Uh, The one that I was friends with went and decked out his dorm room like you have never seen a sophomore college guy's dorm room. I looked like I was living in a concrete prison cell and he had brand new furniture he had upgraded his you know, computer, he had multiple computers, he had gotten decorations. Like It was the place that we would hang out because no other dorm room was like it. He had invested in that which served him well in his sophomore year of college, but when college was over and he got married, I'm going to go ahead and guess that his wife said, you're not bringing that into our home. You know what the other brother did? Who, by the way, was the younger brother, the younger brother... For whatever reason, I don't know if somebody coached him and consulted him, but he got the idea that he was going to buy 10 acres of land in central Florida. Let me ask you this question. Which brother made the smarter investment? (laughs) And the answer is obvious. Because one invested in something that would live not only beyond his college experience, but is continuing to increase in value every single day. It is worth more now than when he originally invested in it. Paul's going to say, so it is with love. If we get caught up in all these temporal, even good things that are called spiritual gifts, and if if that's the metric by which we evaluate ourselves and others, we're investing something that is good and yet is not permanent. In 2 Corinthians 4.18, Paul says, We fix our eyes not on what is seen but what is unseen, because what is seen is temporary, what is unseen is eternal. Now the usual application of that verse is to tell people, and I've used this oftentimes with high school and college students and young adults, is to say to them, don't get caught up in the things of the world, in other words, things like homes and cars and, and, and money and, and jobs, don't get caught up and distracted in that because that's temporal, be focused on the kingdom of God which is eternal, and 100% that is a proper application of the verse. But what's interesting is that Paul uses the same principle and says it's true even of those things that are good and right and of God but don't have the purpose of existing forever. Let me give you another example. Your marriage is a temporary assignment to accomplish an eternal consequence. Jesus says when we're in heaven we're not going to marry or be given in marriage so the relationships that we have now even those that are permanent for our lives, we do, we do see Jesus saying that the heart of God is for marriage, not for divorce, but, but it is a temporary assignment because it won't go with us into heaven. Uh, several years ago, Francis Chan wrote a book called You and Me Forever. If you want your theology and your understanding of your present life to be wrecked and turned upside down, it's a, it's a powerful book. That's what what Paul's saying. It it doesn't have to be a bad thing. It doesn't even have to be a distraction, but we need to understand what things are good and right on earth and what things will we be doing in heaven for the rest of eternity. I need to make an important aside here, and I'm going to get a little bit into the theological weeds, but I think it's important to do this because in a few weeks after the new year, uh, we're going to be talking more about these spiritual gifts, and I, I need to say this. So, When Paul says that these things will come to an end, the question becomes then, when do these things come to an end? In particular, the things he's mentioning, like prophecy and and knowledge and these things, there are some, and and they would call these sensational gifts, and they would say that those sensational gifts were given to the early church to establish the gospel, to establish that the the followers of Jesus were were, uh, entrusted by God with the good news of salvation. And when that early church had been established and that first or second generation died, those sensational gifts like speaking in tongues and and healing and prophecy, those ceased to exist because Paul says it here. This idea or this way of thinking is what is called cessationism. It's the idea that those things ceased and they believe that they ceased when the Bible was completed. So when the book of Revelation, the final book in our canon of Scripture was done, they say, then the perfect came and those things went away. If you're interested, you might want to know that some of the proponents of this view are people like John Calvin, Jonathan Edwards, John MacArthur, basically all the Johns just believe that there are no sensational spiritual gifts anymore. The other view is called continuationism, and it's the view that all the spiritual gifts will continue as long as this present life is happening and and will only cease when we get to heaven. Continuationism. Proponents include Francis Chan, who I mentioned a moment ago, Matt Chandler, and there is one John on this team. John Piper is also a continuationist. Now, I bring that up to say this. This is not a gospel issue. All of those individuals are, are I believe, brothers in Christ, and we're going to be with them in heaven. But I do think it's an important issue, because it's answering the question of, What is God doing in the world today and how is the Holy Spirit manifesting himself through the church? And it matters. And what I would say is though it's not a gospel issue, I do think this passage clearly answers the question. Look again with me at verse 12. Now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully even as I have been fully known. So we ask Paul, what is the then and now? What is Paul referring to in this moment when those spiritual gifts will cease? And I think it's pretty clear that when he says when the perfect comes, he's referring to the moment that we see Jesus face to face. In other words, it's the moment we arrive on the shores of heaven and the spiritual gifts are not needed anymore. Whatever your view, we can all agree that spiritual gifts are a temporal assignment with eternal purpose And this leads to my second reason, or Paul's second reason, why they are inadequate to replace love. Secondly, they cannot be perfected. Another one of Jesus' earliest and closest followers, a man named John, said, there is no fear in love. Perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read the Bible, sometimes questions come into my mind. And the question that came into my mind with this verse is, is it really possible to love perfectly? Is it possible to love perfectly? Now, lo- looking at the, the writer himself and what was written, the, the Greek word that's used there that's translated as perfect is the word telios, which means to bring something to completion. So let me ask the question differently. Is it possible to perfectly or fully Fulfill the demands of love? And I might surprise some of you with with this answer. I'm going to say yes, and in this way. If you're a parent of a young child, and that child screams out in hunger, and you in love choose to feed that child, you are doing for that child exactly as Jesus would do if he were in your place. When you are wronged by an individual, and you choose in love, to forgive that individual, you're doing exactly as Jesus would do in your place. And when you speak up for, when you advocate for those who are experiencing injustice, when you challenge the the powerful who are corrupt and oppressive, when you do those things, you're doing exactly as Jesus would if he were in your place. This is not true when it comes to knowledge and understanding. You cannot perfectly or fully understand as God understands. We can't know as he knows or see as he sees. In other words, it is possible to fulfill the demands of love because it's possible in any given circumstance to do as Jesus would in your place. Not so with knowledge. Not so with prophecy. Not so with understanding. You could study the Bible and, and come up with the the. the ultimate timeline of what's going to happen before Jesus comes back. And guess what? You're going to get something wrong. <laughs> you, you could have a gift of teaching or preaching and you could expound the scriptures. Guess what? There's something you and I are going to miss. But when it comes to love, we can do as Jesus would in our place. So we're not, we're not designed to try to become like God in the way that he knows and sees things, but to become like him in the way that he loves. Remember a few weeks ago, I shared with you about Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, and, and they were created to do and were doing exactly what they were made for. They were in perfect relationship with God, perfect relationship with each other. They were like God in the way that he loves. And if you know the story, you remember the serpent, who is the devil, came to them and they, he said to them, God knows that when you eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will become like him and the door was suddenly opened for humanity to attempt to become like God in his knowledge and power without being like him in love in other words it's the wrong pursuit and this temptation this first of all temptations has found its way into every generation since it has found its way into many if not most churches and what it is, is the pursuit of a likeness of God in his being, but not in his character, where it matters most. The great invitation of God is not to know as he knows, but to become as he is. And we do this primarily by pursuing love. Number three, final reason why the gifts are inadequate as substitutes for love is simply that they are not the priority. If you are a parent, you know that one of the things you need to do every so often is take your child for a checkup. And at those checkups, they're going to weigh the child, they're going to measure height, they're going to measure their, you know, head size, they're going to ask about sleeping habits and eating habits, they're going to ask if they're doing things that are normal for a child to do at that age. And you can walk away from a physical examination with a pretty clear understanding of how your child is maturing, how they're doing in the area of physical growth it is much harder to measure and evaluate spiritual growth. And so what some of us did is, is just without a clear pathway or clear tools, we just kind of came up with our own metrics. See if this resonates with you. When I was younger, some of the ways that I'd measure my spiritual maturity were things like, how many days in a, in a row did I do my quiet time? My, my devos. In other words, my, my Bible reading. How, how did I do it every day this week? If so, man— whew, like I'm good. Or, or maybe I would say the measure of spiritual maturity is how long can I pray without getting distracted? And I pray to God that's not the measure because I still struggle with that. Like, I don't know about you, but I start praying and then I'm like grocery planning within 30 seconds, right? And I have to, I have to do tangible and, and kind of meditative things to keep me centered in a, in, a, in a mind of prayer. But I say, man, if I can pray for five minutes and not just 30 seconds, then I'm really grown up spiritually, Or maybe, and this was true of my teenage years, maybe it's how long have I gone without some major sin, you know? And I would actually at one point keep track. I would check the boxes. I got up to like 17 days one time, you know, without a major sin in my mind. I would say, that's the measure. Everybody has them. The Corinthian church had a little bit of a different metric. Their metric was largely based on these spiritual gifts. And so they would say, look how capable that that person is in speaking in tongues. Look how eloquent and they're just they're so filled with the spirit. That's the measure of spiritual maturity. Or they would say, "Look how dynamic that person's faith is. They can even say things like to a mountain move and it moves. That's the measure." Or, "Wow, what prophetic understanding and insight that person has. They really know the mind of God. That's the metric." These and other measurements were the tools by which the Corinthian church was measuring spiritual maturity. And Paul's argument here in 1 Corinthians 13 is that when things like spiritual gifts are elevated as the metric of of spiritual growth, it is not a sign of maturity, but of childishness. He says, when I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. And when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. The truth is, many of us tend to see loving or caring for people as kind of the spirit, the, the, the starter kit of spirituality, right? Because anybody can love, like a five-year-old can show love. Your dog is probably good at showing love. And so we go, oh man, that's child's play. The people that are really grown up spiritually, the, the people that are really taking the advanced course, man, they're the ones with knowledge and Teaching and prophetic insight. And Paul flips it completely upside down and on its head and says, no, 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 you have it backwards. The greatest among us are those who love well. Those who out of a heart of love just get on their hands and knees and, and put cables into the stage so that we can all come and worship God together. Those that go back into the kids' areas and bounce babies on their knee and, and teach children and, and break up fights and, and love Kids. It's not the ones that are on the stage. It's not the ones that know the most, do the most, have the most. Paul says it's those who love the best that are the grown-ups. They're the ones that look like a full-grown man or woman in the kingdom of God. You need to know that Paul's ideas are not his own because Paul himself had a metric for the better part of his life of evaluating his own spiritual condition and it was called the law. And Paul was bent on making sure that he did every single thing that the law demanded and that everybody else did as well. And as Paul was on his way to Damascus to persecute Christians, Jesus encountered him and Paul had a change of heart and mind and life. And from that point on, Paul understood that it is all about love, the love of God displayed in Christ through us. Some of you would be familiar with John chapter 13. Jesus is about to be betrayed by one of his own disciples at what is called now the Last Supper. And these guys are sitting around a table. There's 13 of them, 12 disciples and Jesus. And it's a super awkward moment because there are no servants at the table and no servants in the room, and so there's nobody to wash the feet. And they're awkwardly looking at each other, and based on what I know about these disciples from other passages, they're thinking in their mind, Man, I sure hope Bartholomew gets up quick because I'm not washing feet. Like, I'm sitting next to Jesus because that's the important place. And Jesus watches this go on. He's looking around. And Jesus is realizing nobody's going to get up and do what needs to be done. And John 13 says that Jesus took out off his outer garment, laid it aside, filled a basin with water, got on his hands and knees and began to wash the disciples' feet. In other words, Jesus began to love and to serve where they were not willing. And when that whole experience concluded, Jesus said to them, now that I, your Lord and your teacher, in other words, the greatest among you, now that I have washed your feet, so you also should wash one another's feet. Meaning that Jesus and the love of Jesus is our model. It is the metric by which we evaluate, am I, am I a Christ follower am I a person who's demonstrating the heart and the character of God it's all about how well I'm loving and I would say especially those who are closest to you because that's where it's hardest when there's conflict in the marriage when there's frustration with the kids when there's a sibling who's gone rogue or a parent who's being you know unreasonable whatever that might be when it's those closest to you that's where love is put to the test To love does not require great insight or knowledge. All that is needed is a heart to love and serve others like Jesus did. And I want you to know, friends, that these are the kinds of people that are going to populate heaven. It's not not the brightest and best. It's those who have been touched by the love of God, displayed in the mercy of Christ, and who freely give that love to others. That's what we'll experience forever. Dallas Willard says it this way, Heaven is an all-inclusive community of perfectly loving persons with Jesus Christ himself as its prime sustainer and its most glorious inhabitant. Will we worship in heaven? Absolutely. Will we grow in knowledge? I believe so. But more than anything, what we will do is we will experience community with God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and our brothers and sisters who are by faith redeemed by the blood of Jesus. This is what we will experience forever and ever. And so we get the chance in this temporary assignment called life to practice becoming the people we'll be forever. I want to give you a real practical way that you can practice that this week. In addition to receiving those text reminders to love, and by the way, if you're not yet doing that, you can. You're going to continue receiving those through Christmas Day. So that text love at 40777, you'll begin receiving those tomorrow. That will go through Christmas Day. But I want you to do something else this week. And I don't want you to receive this as just like a homework assignment or i got to check the box. But I'm going to encourage you. Who's two or three or four people in your life that you could invite to our Christmas Eve services next Sunday? And think especially of that person that needs to know there's a God who loves them. That person at your work who, who just always keeps to themselves. That person at your school who gets bullied or picked on. That person in your neighborhood who just kind of goes in the door and then, you know, shuts the garage and, and you never see them. But you get a chance and would you think about those two, three, or four people in your life and would you extend to them an invitation not just to come to a church service, but next Christmas Eve at our 9.30 or 11 o'clock service to come and hear the good news, the message of a God who loves them enough to send his own son Jesus to the earth for them. So that's gonna be your assignment today as you, as you leave. Uh, we're gonna close with a song. I'm gonna have you stand uh, right now. We're gonna sing this together. And we sang this earlier, but it's a call to do what we've just talked about, to go and take the message of the good news of the gospel to the nations. Let's go tell it on the mountain. Team?